Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.com. Well, I've said this before on the show, and I'll say it again, that the cancer support community, we're not afraid to look uh, the toughest topics straight in the eye and deal with them frankly and honestly. And the end-of-life care ranks right up there uh, at the top. People will avoid, quote-unquote, the talk as long as possible, even while acknowledging its importance. And for the most part, none of us really wants to deal with our mortality. Yet this is a crucial topic for us to think about as individuals and also to discuss with our families and our medical team. This is particularly important when facing a cancer diagnosis. A friend brought to my attention the recently released book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to End of Life, and I am thrilled and grateful to have on the show today its author, Dr. Jessica Zitter. Welcome to the show, Dr. Zitter. Thank you so much for having me. Let me tell our audience a little bit about you. Dr. Jessica Zitter is an expert on the medical experience of death and dying. She attended Stanford University and Case Western Reserve Medical School and completed her residency in internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. She was a fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of California at San Francisco. Dr. Zitter specializes in both pulmonary critical care medicine and palliative care medicine, and we're going to talk about what that is, but that is a rare combination. She writes for the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Pacific Standard, the Atlantic, and the Journal of Palliative Medicine. Dr. Zitter is featured in the Oscar-nominated Netflix documentary, Extremis, and it's really, really a powerful film, uh, a film that deals with end-of-life decision-making in the ICU. You should have some tissues out if you're going to watch it. I can just tell you that. Um, Dr. Zitter, uh, I want to jump right in. We have a lot we want to cover today, and I know a lot that is of interest uh, uh, to our audience. But you you actually began your career as an intensive care unit doctor. Why did you change or or, or sort of shift your specialty? Well, I I actually did not plan to do that at all. I went into the intensive care unit fully intending that that was going to be my primary uh, focus in, in my medical career. I wanted to do the type of intensive medicine that I had seen many of my ancestors, my father, my grandfather, my uncles, great uncles practice. Uh, and it was very exciting to me. And what happened to me over time was that I began to feel this paradigm that I had been taught and had absorbed in this intensive care unit environment was causing um, a lot of suffering to my patients. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it because I didn't have another way to do things. I didn't know any other way to be helpful. Um, but as I watched, you know, the use of my sort of automatic use of these, of these technologies and machines on patients who were dying, I, start, I started to think that, that I was actually causing more harm. And I began to develop this feeling of moral distress. And by complete and utter coincidence and luck, I happened to be in one of the very small number of hospitals in the early 2000s that were starting to look at communication and palliative care in the intensive care unit. 
This was before palliative care was even a subspecialty in 2003. Mm. And there was a group of very strong and um, outspoken um, people called the Family Support Team, which would become their palliative care team, who essentially uh, got me to eventually listen to uh, a new approach to caring for patients with serious illness. And, and that's how I was introduced to palliative care. Wow, it's a, a true sort of real life uh, experience. Sometimes those can be uh, the most profound for us. Um, Dr. Zinner, I want to just take a step back, make sure our, our listeners understand some of the terms and specialties we'll hear discussed uh, uh, on the show today and in dealing with uh, end-of-life care. I think words matter and that clarity matters. So let, let, let me go down a list and uh, let's get some clarity on that. So you, you referenced a couple times in your opening comments palliative care. What exactly is palliative care? Well, to understand that medical subspecialty, which, as I just mentioned, is actually relatively new, sort of since 2008, it's been officially recognized as a medical subspecialty, um, you need to understand what the word palliate means. It comes from the Latin palliare, which means to cloak. And you sort of have this vision of this image of a, of a kindly person cloaking somebody who is suffering with, you know, wrapping them up and caring for them. And that's really how I think of palliative care. It's really attending to a person who is suffering on whatever level it may be. There's so many kinds of suffering I learned as I began to learn about palliative care. There's obviously the physical suffering, which includes pain and, and shortness of breath, the, you know, even itching, constipation, a whole variety of, of, of uh, symptoms that can accompany serious illness. But it also includes um, anxiety, depression, and even a lack of uh, of, of clear communication, lack of understanding what is happening in this very turbulent moment. And so palliative care clinicians are trained to manage both the physical symptoms that can come with serious illness as well as the communication um, jumble and confusion and to try to help sort out communication between patients' families and the healthcare team caring for them. Okay, so let's shift... Maybe our, our listeners may be more familiar with the term hospice or, or, or hospice care. So what is hospice care and how does that differ from palliative care? Well, hospice care is really uh, using palliative care techniques on patients who are definitely approaching death. You know, palliative care, as you can imagine, doesn't necessarily uh, treat patients who are dying. You know, there's a lot of patients who can benefit from palliative care who are not dying, for whom there is suffering, but it, it's, it's manageable and actually can be treated so that they can kind of go on to continue living a life. Um, whereas, you know, when you talk about hospice principles, it's, a, it's about bringing those, those palliative care techniques to patients who are determined to be dying. Um, and and, and meaning, meaning maybe that they... Patients yeah. Maybe that they've ended their treatment. I okay. mean, that's part of hospice, right? That there's no more treatment. Right. There has to really be an acknowledgement by, you know, the patient and the physician and the family that, that we're at a point where the goals of care are not about curing the disease, but really mm -hmm. about maximizing the quality of life uh, and not, you know, pursuing the, the kinds of treatments like chemotherapy or um, other types of treatments that uh, substitute, you know, that, that, are, that are disease-focused or organ-focused, but really kind of using um, treatments that are maximizing uh, quality of life instead. 
Doctor Sitter, I've I've heard sort of passing comments about maybe uh, in the U.S. these conversations about death or end of life are particularly difficult. Are, do you think there are sort of you know cultural issues or cultural tendencies here that contribute? making those conversations difficult, perhaps different than other countries or cultures? You know, in my experience, it's, it's true that there is some aspect of this problem that I sort of talk about and, and write about a lot, this sort of this lack of uh, accepting death, uh, that, it, mm. that feels to me to be somewhat, uh, I wouldn't say uniquely American, but there's a very American quality to it. I think a lot of other cultures are now emulating uh, our our approach, uh, and it's starting to sort of be, become more commonly seen in other kinds of countries that didn't necessarily have this, you know, this type of approach before. But it is, there's something very American about trying to apply more and more effort to a problem. And it's one of the wonderful things about America. Yeah. You know, apply yeah. maximal effort to try to deal with a problem. And so as, you know, since the 1940s and 50s, uh, we've had, you know, emerging, you know, intricate subspecialties and, and treatments and technologies that really can start to target in to enhance organ function. We've just taken those things, expanded upon them, built more of them, and start to apply them to, you know, any problem that emerges, even when it's a patient who's dying. Um, and so we're using them indiscriminately on, on everybody. And I think that is a, it's one of the beautiful things about America that we, that we always try to find solutions and, and put our best effort towards things. But I also think that in this particular area, it can cause, uh, it, it can be illogical, honestly, and cause a lot of suffering that's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So let's take a minute to just talk about the idea of an end-of-life care plan. I mean, I've heard people say that they've told their spouses, you know, what their wishes are. Um, oh, you know, I've told them. They know, you know, they know that. But I'm thinking that maybe those conversations have not been as detailed as they should be, and perhaps not necessarily documented. So, so uh, just t- take a moment to walk us through uh, really a, what a good end-of-life care plan looks like. Well, I'll tell you, you know, from the perspective of a doctor sort of in the, in the intensive care unit with a tremendous amount of complex technology at my disposal and, and that I can use on patients, you know, one of the things that I think is most helpful to me um, is, and, and not only, by the way, in the intensive care unit environment, but in any environment in the hospital, um, is to not have necessarily a cafeteria plan of, well, I do want to use this and I don't want to use that and I would use this and I wouldn't use that. But I, I find it most helpful when families have actually spoken more about the spirit of mm. their end-of-life care plans. Not to say, by the way, that, that you don't document things, and we'll talk about that in a second, yeah. but I really think it's important for families to have started talking about the topic of the spirit, not about how they want their end-of-life to be, but about how they want to be living all the way until the end. Who are they? What is most important to them about life? Is it critically important that they be fully in control physically of all of their, you know, physical, their, their body? For some mm-hmm. people, one of my friends told me her father, who she said he's a tough old Italian man, he once said to her, if I can't wipe my own behind, yep. I don't want to live. I don't want you to do heroic things to keep my body alive. And, you know, for another person, maybe even me, I would actually feel that I could live with physical 
uh, incapacity, if I had mental capabilities, emotional capabilities, ability to, to interact with my family. And these kinds of bigger, higher level philosophical ideas about how you want to live are very, very important because if you come to a doctor and you say, look, this is my father, I know he's not able to talk to us right now, but one thing I know about him is Mm -hmm. that he would fight to the death, he would want you to fight to the death if you could restore him to whatever, you know, thus and such quality of life, these capabilities. But if there's not a chance that he will be able to, for example, wipe his own behind. I want you to tell me now, because at that point, I know he would not want you to keep him on these machines. And those kinds of directives are really important. And those don't come down in the form of a checkbox mm-hmm. or a list of things that you do and don't want. They're, 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 they're more um, philosophical and but, existential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, Dr. Zitter, we're going to uh, we're going to head into our first uh, uh, our first commercial break here. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We are having a conversation with uh, Dr. Jessica Zitter uh, about her new book called Extreme Measures: Finding a Better Path to End of Life. Uh, we we know these can be very difficult and challenging conversations, and uh, not necessarily um, the first uh, conversation on your on your list that you want to have with your family, but. We also uh, know and we'll hear from from doctors that are about some of the uh, challenges in not having these conversations and the challenges that families face uh, by not doing so. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. 
To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by AstraZeneca and Lilly Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and with us today is Dr. Jessica Zitter, author of the recently released book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to End of Life. Dr. Zitter specializes in both pulmonary critical care medicine and palliative care medicine, which is a rare combination. She writes for the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Pacific Standard, the Atlantic, and the Journal of Palliative Medicine. So, uh, Dr. Zitter, I want to talk a little bit um, uh, uh, about the book, and, and congratulations. It's well done and and really, um, really beautifully written. Have you always been a writer? Have you, you know, had sort of literary aspirations? Because there's some some parts of it that are really very descriptive and, 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 and detailed and, and uh, you know, really uh, be- beautifully written. Thank you so much for saying that. I, you know, I've always written, um, even I remember my 13-year-old journal when we went to Europe as a family, and it was always sort of personal, you know, journaling and uh, processing of things that were happening in my life. And, um, you know, I that didn't stop when I went into medical school and started being confronted with, with really, you know, profound suffering and a lot of just emotional, my own emotional experience. And it was only really when I started to realize that I had a message that I wanted others to hear, that I, that I needed others to hear, that others needed to hear, that I started to write really for other people. Um, I mean, I, I, I've always loved to write. I've always written poetry. But this was a moment where I started to say, wait a minute. And this was really only a few years ago uh, when, when this, this topic just, to, you know, my palliative care training started to really bloom. And I started to see that there was this other way of doing things that, didn't in any way disparage the ICU or put it down, or but, but that was a way to enhance my ICU practice. And I just felt, number one, that I wanted to share it and to talk about the hopefulness of it. And number two, that I didn't, you know, I just, I, I didn't see it happening enough that, that we were talking about these personal uh, challenges and how difficult this was. And I felt that I needed to sort of, you know, share my experience and how difficult it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you really, in the book, take the reader into the hospital room with you. You write it in very vivid and sometimes graphic uh, detail. If it's okay, I'm just going to read a, a particular quote that caught my attention. Um, you write, quote, bone grinds against bone under my palms. One more strong push and I will crush him. I envision my hands breaking into his chest cavity, swamped in blood and tissue. And then later you write, quote, the eight minutes crawl by the patient's chest clicking like the hand of an old clock. It, it, it's powerful. It's graphic. It's, it's you know, again, you pull, the, pull the, uh, the reader right in there with you. Did you ever worry that it might be too much for, for the reader? Why was this level of, of detail important to you in this writing? Yeah, you know, I do worry. I still worry that mm-hmm. there are going to be some people who are, who are put off by it, who might turn away from it, turn away from the conversation because it 
disturbing. I mean, it is disturbing. This was disturbing to me. It's, that's why it has stuck with me all these many years later. But I think that so much of the problem that we have, that we find ourselves in right now, is that we aren't talking about these issues, these realities. And doctors aren't talking to patients and families about the realities of what can happen. And if we go down this path, these are the potential scenarios that might happen to you with decubitus ulcers and coming in and out of the ICU back and forth to a ventilator facility. People have no idea of the reality of what happens. And so people mm-hmm. get sent off along this, this, this path without really being informed on a deep level. And I think that that has gotten us into a lot of trouble. And that is part of what I'm trying to correct by really saying it like I remember it and like I've seen it and telling people the truth. Mm-hmm. So, so who is this book for? Did you, did you write this book with the, with the medical community in mind or, or, or the patient, his or her loved one? Who are you trying to reach with these messages? Well, it's a funny, <laughs> it's a funny thing because again, never having written a book for anybody, uh, I, you know, many, many different people were saying, well, who is your audience here for this book? And, you know, the, my agent was asking me and the, the, the publishers and the honest truth as I thought about it and thought about it is that this is actually a book for anybody who might die. <laughs> and it's a book. I guess for all that's all of us. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's all of us. I mean, this book really is, there, there are messages in this book for uh, the lay public, for, you know, those acting as surrogates for another person. There are messages for medical students. There are messages for nurses. There are messages for doctors. There are messages for administrators and politicians. I mean, I feel like there is something in, I hope, I've tried to make it uh, something that anybody can walk away from and be helped uh, in terms of thinking, whether it's about policy change or medical school education or how to manage their sick mother. Um, you know, and care for their sick mother and, and advocate for their sick mother. I'm hoping that there will be something in it for everybody. Mm, terrific, terrific. I know that in the book, in addition to presenting case studies, you explain, in some senses, how we wound up where we are, um, you know, with some of our deficits in, 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 in this conversation around end-of-life care. For example, uh, you tell us about the origins of the, of the ICU. Um, why do you believe the historical context is, you know, is important to know? You know, I think, I mean, it, it's a fascinating history, actually, when you look at it. First of all, it's just interesting for, from an interest's sake, uh, you know, just the rapidity, uh, the rise of this profound, it's like the bionic man, you know, this rise of technology that happened so quickly in the, from the mid-20th century to the present time. And I mean, and you can imagine now the, the exponential development of new drugs and technologies, even in the past year. I mean, the, the, you know, some of the stuff that's come out really literally since 2015 in terms of targeted technologies for cancer, it's, it's, it's striking. And it, it really, you know, it, it, it reminds us of the spirit of the human spirit of drive to solve problems, and particularly, as I mentioned, this American drive to solve problems, that we are just so, it's wonderful. And it also shows us how toxic and how dangerous and how, how much danger we can get ourselves into so, so quickly. And I think, um, you know, I, I hope that by people seeing this sort of this ramping up of this, 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 this rise in dependence and celebration of technology in such a short period of time that almost sort of out of our control, that they'll understand, you know, more about how we've gotten into this, into this situation and how much it's going to take to unhook ourselves from it as well in terms of our thinking. Yeah, yeah. 
I want to read another short passage from the book where you recall a childhood event when you were in the hospital uh, getting stitches. Uh, It reads, quote, but looking back so many years later, the terror of being on the side of the needle is still palpable. Even though it all turned out fine, I remember the loneliness as I sat in the cold chair under bright lights. I remember bracing for pain, the needle glinting in my uncle's gloved hand. I remember the silence, the expectation that I would play my part without complaining, without questioning. I remember the powerlessness and the distance. So boy, that's a that's an early experience that really, you know, did that stay with you or did it, did it come back years later, you know, as you were sort of more focused on this work? What, tell us about that. Why did you include that in the in the book? You know, that I mean that moment uh among many others is a moment that just really comes back to me all the time and it, and even if it doesn't automatically come back to me, I bring it back consciously when I'm caring for my patient because I'll never forget that feeling, that terror that I felt in that moment, and this feeling of needing to, wanting to please my doctor. It was my, happened to be my great uncle um, and my father who was standing there and wanting to be brave and to be, you know, compliant and to do it, what I needed to do to get better. And, 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 and also the coldness, you know, this sort of sense that you just need to do this. And, and it's, it's, it was terror inducing for me. And when I have a patient in whom I am getting ready to put some large catheter or do some, you know, treatment and they're sitting with terror and not knowing what is to become of the rest of their lives and their disease and also what's going to happen during this procedure, that moment and other moments like that, um, I, I, if they don't come back on their own, I try to bring them back just to, to remind myself and to bring back the compassion that I want to be feeling for all of my patients. And that's so trained out of us because we have to sort of, you can't feel those moments all the time because otherwise you'll go crazy and you'll feel, you know, powerless to do what you need to do. But you have to have some element of it in order to be, I think, a compassionate doctor. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a tough balance. And so, it, so it, you know, in some ways, that becomes a that moment becomes a touchstone for you. It becomes a sort of an, an honesty check in terms of how you're how you're interacting with patients today. Right. It's a sort of a do unto others moment of, wow. Remember when you were sitting in that chair yourself? How would you want you know, what would you want someone to do for you in a moment like that? And it it, it it's it's almost a moral guide and and uh, it keeps me honest. It keeps me where I want to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting close to the uh, to the end of our segment here. I'm just going to quickly read another passage, and we'll see if we have time to talk about it, or or maybe we'll do so on the other side of the break. Um, again, a passage from your book. A quote: "It was Thanksgiving Day, and there was only a skeleton staff present. My grandmother's urine bag was empty, and the blood pressure cuff in the room didn't register pressure. My worst fears were confirmed. She was in septic shock and dying." None of the surgical residents was answering his or her pager, so I commandeered the floor nurse. My grandmother needed fluid, I told her, a lot of fluid, or she would surely die. I managed to convince her, and then I paged the attending physician myself, explaining the urgent situation. My grandmother was prepped and draped in the operating room within 30 minutes. A four-hour surgery ensued. She went on to live another 10 years. Got about a minute till till our break, but tell me about that quote. Well, that was my... My first grandmother, who uh, my mother's mother, who had a terrible, terrible cancer and ended up uh, having it resected and was actually going to do pretty well, and, except for the fact that it 
uh, the, the anastomosis split open and she ended up getting very septic and almost dying. And I was a resident and this action here that I told you about saved her life. It was very easy for me, I mean, relatively easy for me to scramble this entire operating room staff on the Thanksgiving, it was Canadian Thanksgiving, it was a, a completely empty hospital. But mm. many years later, when my other grandmother uh, started to die in hospice and was needing morphine for tremendous shortness of breath, and I was a palliative care doctor at that point, and trying to get morphine for her, and I was unable to do it because uh, I was being looked at as uh, an uncaring granddaughter, and it was easier for me to scramble an operating room team as a resident, a young resident, than it was for me to get morphine for my grandmother. She was dying in hospice many years wow. later. Wow. Wow. Two very, very powerful uh, experiences. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We've got a lot more to talk about with doctors that are Don't Go Away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, Novo Cure, and Taiho Oncology. I'm Kim Tebaldo, and our guest today is doctor and author Jessica Zitter. We've been talking to Dr. Zitter about her new book, Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to End of Life. Dr. Zitter specializes in both pulmonary critical care medicine and palliative care medicine. She's featured in the Oscar-nominated Netflix documentary, Extremis, a film that deals with end-of-life decision-making in an ICU, and it's very, very powerful. So I encourage, uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, uh, to check it out. Dr. Zitter, you share your own experiences um, in the book, and and to be honest, some of which you don't put, um, in, in, you know, in the best light. Are you are you taking a little bit of a risk by writing with such candor? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> you know, it's the only way I know how to write. Um, I, I, I don't find, honestly, I don't find it interesting uh, to write uh, without really reflecting. And when I reflect, I see things that I wish I could do better. Or I wish I had, was stronger, or braver. And you know, one of my colleagues once said to me, "The only reform that comes is from confession." And I actually put that in my prologue because I actually really think that's true. I think it's only when we can actually start to reflect on our own behavior and what we wish we could do differently or, or on our own infrastructure or the system 
that we can actually start to think about how to reform it. When we accept that there's a problem and then say, let's move on and make it better. Um, and, you know, it's part of what I think is our, our, the problem that's gotten us into this cultural, this mess, this is, it stems from this failure to really do that, to feel that we need to always have the right answers. We doctors always need to know everything and to be perfect. And I really think that that's actually uh, caused tremendous suffering, not only for our patients who don't get the information they need, but also for us. And so I hope that we can start to change that paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so tell me how have your colleagues and the medical community at large sort of, you know, reacted to the book? What, uh, what kind of reaction are, are you getting? Well, um, no one has, no one has yelled at me. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Congratulations. I, I've, Congratulations. Been actually, <laughs> <laughs> I've been really struck by the response that I've gotten from the nursing community. Um, mm. Really, it's, it's so interesting. I mean, many of my colleagues have been very supportive and wonderful, but I've really been amazed by how nurses have found this to um, be uh, uh, helpful. And um, I, I really appreciate that. I feel, you know, for, as you know, uh, as I mentioned, I was sort of taught how to be the doctor that I want to be by a nurse. Um, and it was, it was this woman, Pat Murphy, who was one of the people, the, the woman who had that headed the, the, that family support team at that hospital that I worked at in the early 2000s who really kind of taught me how to bring in a more patient-centered approach to my uh, patients. And I didn't learn that in medical school. I did not learn that in residency. I did not learn that in my fellowship. And um, so the nurses have really risen to this. And, and I think a lot of what I talk about in terms of this need to be more of a collaborative approach to patient management, particularly for all patients, but particularly for patients who are approaching the end of life, we, we really don't, you know, do anybody a service by having doctors sort of driving that entire ship. I think that we need to be collaborating with our nursing colleagues and um, to just make this a more robust team approach. So I've been really pleased to to feel those kinds of affiliations with, with the nursing community. And my colleagues has, have also been supportive to me, so I'm very appreciative. So is, so is there a curriculum in medical school that teaches you how to manage and deal with end-of-life issues? You know, um, not as many as there as I think there should be. Uh, mm. You know, again, things are changing rapidly in many medical schools. Now it's becoming, um, in many medical schools, sort of an expected, uh, you know, there's, first of all, this Vital Talk program, which you may or may not have heard about, um, which is a uh, clinician-oriented um, um, program that teaches clinicians how to provide good, to, to enhance their communication skills to break bad news, so many of the things that we're not doing well, how to manage extreme emotion, all the things that we were just never taught uh, in not only medical school, but probably in nursing school as well, I would imagine. And I, I think that, um, that, that there is more of, of an interest in bringing these kinds of programs and trainings into medical schools and nursing schools. I really believe that a big part of this is going to have to be interprofessional. I think training interprofessionally, bringing uh, maybe even using simulators or cases where you have, you know, medical students, nursing students, and a social worker sitting together. Okay, how should we approach this particular situation? How should we talk to each other as a team? How should we prepare before meeting with this family? Who, you know, who should be in on this meeting? Those are things that, are, you know, just how we 
organize ourselves interprofessionally, um, that kind of training I think is really important, and I am hoping that we're going to start seeing more of that. I haven't seen that much of it yet, but I, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm confident that we're going to start to see that. So you, you alluded earlier in the show to advances in technology, science, innovation, right, With that, that this brought some great things to our society, to our care. It's brought better care. It's brought cures. But what do you think has been the impact of technology on end-of-life care, for better or for worse? Yeah. I mean, it's it's such a mixed blessing because, I mean, we have done amazing things with technology. I, I have used technologies to really send people back home to their lives. You know, tens of thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of kids who would have died from polio were sent home to live completely productive lives uh, in the 40s and 50s. Um, but when you have someone who is truly dying and truly approaching the end of life, then what you're doing with this type of technology and what I see every day in the intensive care unit is you're almost suspending them in, in like a metal cocoon. It's like suspended animation. And you're sort of stretching out their death. Um, it, it, you know, you can slow the dying process if you, you, you know, in some cases when you put people on machines. And I think that is my, you know, from surveys that we've looked at and just from, in my opinion, you know, my experience with people, most people would never agree to that. They would never mm. agree if someone said, would you like your death to be stretched out? Would you like your mm-hmm. dying to be stretched out from, you know, days to weeks or from hours to days? I would say most people would say absolutely not. And yet sure. we do these things to people when we know they're dying a lot. And, I, you know, we're like, well, I can't be 100% sure that they're dying. Yeah, you can never be 100% sure that someone's dying until they're dead. And yeah. so if we stand behind that, we're just going to keep taking dying patients where we our gut feeling is we know they're dying and, and putting them on these machines when we would never want that for ourselves. Yeah, I heard one speaker say, and I thought this was pretty powerful, that, we, you know, that we're, um, we're much better at delaying death than we are at extending life. <laughs> ah, yeah, that's a I, very interesting quote. Yeah, that's yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Um, Dr. Zitter, we've got a few minutes to our next break, but I just want to go through quickly some interesting t- statistics that we came across um, in some of our research, and I just want to get your uh, insights. So, uh, number one, is this statistic correct that 50% of patients die in pain? And if that is, why is that? And is that preventable? Well, the, the statistic I've seen about pain is 60%. Um, mm. And I, I, I haven't, maybe yours is more recent than mine, but uh, mine was certainly over the past few years. Um, You know, there are many, many, many reasons why I think that might be true, Um, Mm. many of which are things that we see in the intensive care unit, so it's a good example to use about why that can happen. We are taught, you know, in ICU that blood pressure is is probably the most important currency that we own there. You want to, if you can't keep someone's blood pressure up to, you know, to to a level where at least they're getting some perfusion to their organs, then you, you've got a problem. And so we do a lot of things to really enhance people's blood pressure. And, you know, one of the things I write about in the book is, you know, uh, someone has pain, we, 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 we don't necessarily prioritize thinking about that until we've gotten our blood pressure under control. So mm-hmm. it's very hard, you know, you, you're, you're taught to triage in a way. And blood pressure, you know, kind of is the most important one. And so mm-hmm. there is, that's one, there's one reason why pain may not be attended to as carefully as we would like. You know, certainly there's going to be some pain medication, but I have, I have had, you know, many patients who I 
feel like I'm, oh gosh, you know, I'm really not adequately attending to what must be going on in this person's uh, uh, mind and body right now, uh, based on the, the, the not only the pain, the physical pain, but the, the fear and the, you know, because I'm attending to this blood pressure thing. So that that's one reason. Another reason is, you know, when patients are getting sick and starting to die, they can't really communicate with us. And so if we're not seeing visual images of pain, a person's not wincing or screaming or doing something, we, we may not necessarily think about pain. We may not even sort of think about treating it if it's not right in front of our faces. And that, of course, is, is an issue in the intensive care unit where patients really cannot speak with us. And so, again, I, I will tell you that that's getting better and better. I mean, uh, the, over the past several years, I have watched my residents and medical students, um, you know, be much more attentive to pain and to preempt it and think about it. But when I was a resident, when I was a young attending, it was just not, I, I, I feel terrible saying it, but it wasn't the level the priority. of priority, priority yeah. that it, sh- it yeah. should have been. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors that are, we got a, a, about a minute till the break, but another quick question. According to sure. a survey by the Conversation Project, 90% of people say, 90% say talking to a loved one about end-of-life care is important, but only 27% reported that they had done so. It also found that 82% say it's important to put their wishes in writing, but only 23% had. To what do you do you attribute this disconnect? Being human. <laughs> um, Fair I mean, enough. In the book, I... I in the book, I write, a, there's a section called My Own Procrastination. I believe that's the title of it. And it's really about my personal inability to write down an advanced directive. And my husband and I were trying to get this done. It took me years. I'm, I'm really ashamed to say that. Years to get this thing turned in. I would take it with me on all of my trips across the country, and I'd always bring my little thing with me. Oh, I'm going to do it on this trip. It's mm-hmm. hard to do this stuff. But it's really very, very important and, and, and essential to start thinking about these, these issues. Great. And then after the break, maybe we can give our listeners a couple tips about how they can get sure. started and where they can turn for some of that. Um, this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we're having a frank conversation with Dr. Zitter about uh, end-of-life care, end-of-life decisions, communication with the family, and really learning a, a fascinating uh, history and uh, really discussing what are some of the elements in our society that brought us to this moment today. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. 
Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, EMD Serono, and Takeda Oncology. I'm Kim Tibaldo. We've been having a great conversation today with Dr. Jessica Zitter. Dr. Zitter is an expert on the medical experience of death and dying. Dr. Zitter, we've got a, a few more moments together, and um, so I want to make sure I prioritize uh, really some good concrete tips for our listeners to get these conversations started. And I appreciate your frankness in our last segment about, uh, you know, this is your, your area of expertise, but it really took you quite a bit of time, even yourself, to put these documents in place. Um, somebody's listening today. They're saying, you know what, I think this is important. I'm going to make this a priority. Where do they get started? Well, there are several different things to do. Um, the first thing is to really, it, part of us also depends on where you are in terms of your own life. If you're a relatively healthy person who doesn't have any major health issues and you're kind of 40s, 50s, 60s, early, even earlier, you might want to think about starting to have conversations with your family about your priorities and preferences like we alluded to in the beginning of, the, of our talk. Uh, what's important to you? There are things that you can play like Go Wish, which is a wonderful card game that really helps you to elicit those values that are most important to you and helps you play the game with those that you love. And so you can kind of guess things and think about things and predict things for each other. And that really helps it to stick. So having that robust conversation within your family is very, very important. And I think along with that goes beginning, uh, you know, to think about who it is that you would want to have speak with you for you if you could not speak for yourself. So even if you God forbid, if you're 40 years old and you get hit by a car, there should be someone that you have, uh, you know, uh, that you feel confident 
will be able to make decisions that that will go along with what those preferences and values are that you have. And so that would be done in the form of an advanced directive. Um, advanced directives are really filled, are two, twofold. There's two parts to them. The first part is essentially choosing a surrogate. Who is that person, number one, who you can count on to really channel you as a person when they're making decisions if you cannot speak for yourself? And number two... You know, and that person, again, should be not only the person you can count on, but they should also have that knowledge that we've just been talking about that, you know, you get from things like the conversations in GoWish. So that advanced directive, I think, is a very important first step. So those are very, very important things to do. You might want to even revisit those, you know, on a yearly basis. I have a friend, uh, Dr. Don Gross, who does this every year on her um, wedding anniversary with her husband. They've been doing it for many, many years. They play Go Wish, and they just recalibrate and, you know, think about if anything's changed and kind of just keep delving into these questions. So those are things I think are important. Reach, re, um, recheck your advanced directive. Probably every year is a good idea if you can, mm-hmm. and figure out if there's somebody different that you'd prefer to have as your surrogate. Then if, you know, you're in a situation where you do have more serious illness, uh, you've got a disease of the lungs, COPD, emphysema, or you've got congestive heart failure, and you're starting to, you know you have a serious illness, then there's other things you can do that I think are very, very important. In addition to the things I've just discussed, you want to really be getting honest information from your doctor about your illness, about the trajectory of your illness. How are things doing? Are they changing? Are, is there any worsening at all? Does it seem stable? Um, and acknowledging with your doctor that you understand this is a, as a, this is a life-limiting illness, and hopefully you'll still have years, but you may not, and that you are wanting to open up an honest dialogue with your healthcare team, hopefully in this outpatient setting early on thinking about, well, what happens when my heart failure gets serious enough that I might end up getting put on a breathing machine? You know, doc, can you tell me what are the pros? What are the cons? What's the likelihood that I would come off? What if we put me on the breathing machine and I didn't come off? You know, these are all conversations that I think are very important to have early on in the existence of a serious diagnosis like Mm -hmm. kidney failure, heart failure, lung, you know, lung diseases, whatever. Even though you expect to live many, many years longer, start that conversation with your healthcare team. I guess those would be the things I would, I would say. There's one more piece, which is people say, what's a pulsed form? And I'm, I'm sure that some of your readers or listeners have heard about pulsed, P-O-L-S-T. That stands for Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Most states honor these. Um, and they are, are um, forms that are essentially signed by a doctor. So it's, a, it's an official doctor's order. So nobody can, you know, legally go against that, an EMT or an ER doctor or anybody else. If, if, if you have signed a pulse form saying, do not do this type of life-sustaining treatment, and there's several different ones listed on this form, then they are obligated to provide other types of treatment, maybe treatment for comfort or, or whatever, but not to use whatever is listed on that form uh, that you would not want to have. You don't, if you do want those types of treatments, quite frankly, you don't really need to fill out a pulse because that happens by default anyways. But if you mm-hmm. do not want them, if you've decided that's not for you, then you should fill out a pulse form and have it signed by your doctor. So, uh, so just quickly, doctors that are so both an advanced directive and a pulse form, where do folks get these documents? You can actually get them online. Um, they're okay. state-specific. So if you live in State. Arkansas, you want to get an Arkansas-specific advanced directive or an Arkansas-specific pulse form. Um, 
and you most of this stuff is online. There's other websites like prepareforyourcare.org, which uh, is a wonderful website for creating. It walks you through all the different steps to think about an advanced directive. Uh, think shows you films of people talking and considering different alternatives, and is a, a really nice media. It, you know, invested in pr- approach to sort of learning more about these issues and helps you at the end create this advanced directive um, mm. type type document. Uh, but there's many different resources, and I and I, I I think that there's lots of places to get started if you just go online. Terrific, because I you know I know folks are again if they're listening and they're motivated to uh, motivated to act and they're motivated to research and explore. Uh, some of these issues at a, at a deeper level, we certainly want to encourage them to do that. And and again, just quickly, you don't necessarily you don't need to go to a lawyer to do these things. You don't have to spend money. You don't have to hire a lawyer to do these. Correct. Uh, that's right. Um, for the advanced directive, uh, you do want to get it um, uh, signed by two people. And I believe, and I'm embarrassed to say, I should know this, but I think yeah. you you might need to get it notarized. Is that Kim? Do you know? I, I, I should know I, this. I, um, I think I, I think it also depends on the state. I think in some instances you can just have a witness, but in some instances, in some states you do have to have it notarized. So again, a good tip for folks to take a look in your state if you're uh, putting together an advanced directive. You know, just check and double check and see if you have to have that uh, have to have that notarized. So again, good tips for folks, and and uh, you can uh, you can expect more from us on this topic because we want to be uh, helpful to folks and encourage these conversations. Um, Dr. Zitter, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about your new book. Uh, the book is called Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to End of Life. I really highly recommend that folks check it out. It's a terrific book and, and, and uh, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts and insights and recommendations uh, about end of life care. It's been um, a, just a wonderful uh, and very helpful conversation. And again, I think maybe maybe just the tip of the iceberg and hopefully Dr. Zitter, you'll come back uh, onto the show and we can talk more uh, about these topics. Um, it's wonderful. Been, well, that would be great. That would be great. It's been my pleasure uh, to have uh, our listeners join today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo from the Cancer Support Community. And I just also want to remind our listeners uh, that at the Cancer Support Community, we have a whole host of free uh, support services in person, online, telephone support. Uh, we have 47 affiliates at centers around the country where you can go for support groups, educational programs, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction. These services are free of charge to people with all cancers at all stage of their disease and for their family members members and loved ones. You can also call our helpline if you want to grab a pen. I'll give you that number. It's 888-793-9355. Again, 888-793-9355. You can call for uh, support, for navigation services, resources. Uh, give us a call. We're happy to help. Our website is www.cancersupportcommunity.org. I thank you all for listening today to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well. Do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support